We have been in a series in 1 Corinthians for uh, a really long time, but we're only in chapter 3 of a 15-chapter book. Uh, But like I said at the way beginning when we were starting that 1 Corinthians, at least in our series, what we would do is only focus on the first four chapters before we uh, then moved on. And so we're nearing the end of our series. Uh, We spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, a few weeks in 1 Corinthians 2, but then we're going to do chapter 3 in one week and chapter 4 in another week as we get ready for the Christmas season. Uh, We've been in a series, of course, called Being a Cross-Eyed Church. If you've been here for any number of weeks, hopefully that is being made clear. Uh, Last week, we saw Paul's encouragement for the church. Uh, He basically was saying, have the mind of Christ. And the way that you have this mind of Christ is the spirit of God's wisdom um, fills us, and and it helps us see the world through the lens of Christ, through the lens of the gospel. Uh, What we're looking at today is three metaphors. Paul talks about the church, and he's going to use three metaphors to identify the church, and we want to consider those implications. Why does God use those metaphors? What does he want us to know? And so with that, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter from verses 1 to 23. So please hear now the reading of God's holy word. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, And each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we need your illumination. We need your help to peel back um, the sin in our eyes, 
the sin in our hearts that calls us from not seeing and not understanding your words properly. God, in this hour, I do pray that you would help us, that you would instruct us. Father, the theme of 1 Corinthians is your church. And I pray, Father God, that this church is being molded, Cornerstone is being molded as we study and submit to your word. And so in this time, help us. Because unless your spirit is present among us, these words will fall on dead hearts. So God, open up our ears, open up our minds, open up our hearts so that we would listen and that we would respond. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, metaphors are like windows in a house. Through them, we see the world. So through windows in a house, whether you're on the first floor or the second floor, or if you have a third floor, you will get a different perspective on the things around you. In the same way, when we use metaphors, metaphors will actually help us see the world from different viewpoints, from different perspectives, depending on what metaphor we use. For example, there's a book called um, More Than Cool Reason, And in this book, there are two authors, and they ask us basically to consider this. They say, consider a verbal disagreement. A verbal disagreement between people. We call this an argument, right? And for the most part, when people view arguing, they view it through the metaphor of war. Don't you? We defend ourselves. We need to destroy their argument. We need to counterattack. And the controlling metaphor of war to understand arguing makes us become really hostile. The, la- the very language we use changes the way we approach arguing. But the authors say this, imagine that metaphor for arguing was dancing. Right? Instead of two enemies attacking each other, arguing, what if it was two partners coming together? They were working together to be in step. What if arguing wasn't about destroying each other and being each at, at each other's throats, but what if arguing was trying to make the other person look good? What if arguing was letting the other person lead and, and, and you following along? And imagine all of us, the whole metaphor of arguing changed to something like dancing. Then, then I really think disagreements, right, those would be edifying. They wouldn't be so divisive. They wouldn't be so destructive. You see, the power, the metaphor is powerful, and so all throughout the Bible, God is using metaphor after metaphor. And here in our scripture today, we see that Paul uses, or God uses through Paul, three metaphors about the church. And each of these metaphors will reveal something, something different about the church. And Paul lays it out very easily for us. The metaphors are this. The church is a field, the church is a building, and the church is a temple. And each one of these metaphors is going to give us a different insight into the church. And so that's what I want to do. I just want to take a look at each of these three metaphors and say, what does that mean for us? The gospel truth uh, this afternoon is this. The triune God directs his church, and we should follow because we belong to him. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, directs his church, and we should follow because we belong to him. And so although there are three metaphors, we're going to look at four things today. We're going to look at the church is God's field, the church is God's building, the church is God's temple, and lastly, the church is God's. So first, the church is God's field. If you look at verse 9, Paul lays out his first metaphor. For we are God's fellow workers. That's him and Apollos. We are God's fellow workers. You, the church, are God's field. Now, verses 5 to 8 give a description of 
this metaphor uses all this kind of agricultural language. So the question is this, why does Paul choose to use that metaphor, the church being a field? And I think the answer is because he wants to highlight the point of verse 6. God gives the growth to the church. Verse 6 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now the growth that God gives, this is not a numerical growth. It's not saying God will grow your church to be twofold or threefold. This is a spiritual kind of growth, that God is those who grows you spiritually. And we know this because in verses 1 to 4, Paul was discussing about the spiritual maturity or the the lack thereof, the spiritual immaturity of the Corinthians because of factionalism. If you remember weeks ago, we looked at chapter 1, and chapter 1 was all about the division in the church. And what had happened is the Corinthians fell into a celebrity worship kind of culture where they would look at the different kind of pastors and the different leaders and the different preachers and they would align themselves up with these groups. We had used the uh, illustration of uh, Team Jacob and Team Edward or if, if, if you know, maybe that was too contemporary for you, remember back in the day, were you a, a Backstreet Boys fan or an Sync fan or you know, are you, did you like Britney or Christina Aguilera? The world was kind of divided. And in the same way, without us realizing, we fall into that same kind of celebrity type of worship. And Paul was saying to the people of Corinth, that is so destructive. Yet that's how we are. I mean, it's so true, isn't it, that a preacher will come, and I know Cornerstone for the past almost two years had many different guest speakers, and there are some speakers that I know, I'm sure half the congregation really liked, and the other half said, oh, he was okay, and then there's another, and they said, man, he has it, and they're like, he has nothing, <laughs> right? I mean, we are so divided, and Paul's saying that kind of attitude is very dangerous, and so he actually uh, pokes fun a little bit. He criticizes a little bit the Corinthians. In verse 4, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Are you not be- being merely of the flesh, infantile? Paul's point is this. Hey, we got to forget about the church leaders. A church leader is only an instrument in the hand of God. And so in verse 5, Paul writes, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Now, it's interesting. We tend to go by too quickly something like this. Listen to his, like, what is Apollos? What is Paul? That's bad grammar. We should be saying, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But the writer, Paul, is doing this intentionally. You know, in the, in the Greek language, um, you have different genders. So you have masculine genders, and you have feminine genders, and you have neuter genders, which is just kind of a neutral. And so here Paul, he intentionally uses a neuter word. What is Paul? What is Apollos? And the reason he's doing that is because he's, he's intentionally drawing attention away from their personhood, who they are as people, and he's trying to pay attention to their function. Their function. Why their function? Because they are merely an instrument or a tool in God's hand. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Verse 5 says, Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. God gives church leaders to the church, not for them to be celebrated, not for people to look up to them and say, man, he, I really like his style. But so, so that through him, God can do a work among the church. You know, when it snows, imagine you borrowed your neighbor's snow blower. When you return it, you don't say to the snow blower, Well, thank you. 
you say to the neighbor, thank you for lending me your snowblower. In the same way, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They're merely reasons to give God thanks. They are not to be looked up to. You know, Paul reminds us of, of that over and over. Look at verse 6 and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Well, then he says the same thing again. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, Paul, Paul's a pastor. You would think that he would have um, some kind of fear of, of job security. That, that Aren't you kind of... Um, setting yourself up for unemployment by saying, you know, the church leaders, they're not that important. It's all about God. Paul has none of that. Paul has no shame in saying the work that we did, it's not about us. God did the work. And so his encouragement to the church is you are God's field. And a field only grows because God gives the growth. So look to God. Don't look to me. Thank God. Don't thank me. Hope in God. Don't hope in me. You know, there's a famous story her story about a famous violinist, and when he passed away, um, he had a Stradivarius, if you know what that is, that's, uh, nowadays these violins are worth millions of dollars, and he, all of his family had passed away, he had no one to give his Stradivarius to, and so they decided to auction it, and during the auction, uh, another famous violinist uh, purchased or won the auction, and as soon after that, he decided to have a concert using this new Stradivarius violin. And so the evening of the show, the concert hall was filled to capacity, and everyone is there, excited, waiting in breathless anticipation. And the lights came on, and the stage was empty. It was dead quiet. The violinist walked up to the stage, and the only thing he had in his hand is his bow and his violin. And he began to play the most difficult composition and if you're familiar with the composer Paganini, he played this wonderful, intricate piece, and everything was perfect. His technique was flawless, and his tone was exquisite. And after he finished, the whole audience rose to their feet. They jumped in roaring applause. And the violinist simply bowed, took the violin by the neck, and he smashed it on the ground into a thousand pieces. And then he left the stage. And everyone's mouth is just dropped. Each one of those pieces of wood must be worth $1,000. Well, a few moments later, another man walked out on the stage, grabbed the mic, and he said these words. The performance that you just heard is the first of four selections. The violin, though, cost only $100. The violinist will now come and perform the rest of the concert on the Stradivarius. Now, you could hear that story and say, man, that violinist is such an egomaniac. What was he trying? What was, what was he doing? What was he thinking? And his point was this. The genius is not in the violin, but in the one who wields the violin, the one who plays the violin. What were Paul? What was Apollos? Servants. Instruments violins. And all that was accomplished through them was not by any genius or skill or ability in themselves, but in God alone. They could water, they could plant, but all of that would be in vain unless God gave the growth. So here's the implication then for us as God's church. If we are the field and God gives the growth, 
then that means this. God gives the growth to us spiritually, individually, and to us corporately according to his own desire and his own time. We cannot manufacture spiritual growth. We cannot fabricate spiritual maturity and gospel transformation. But we are not to become fatalists who lay back and says, well, you know, if that's true, then God will grow us when he grows us, and if he doesn't, then he'll do it later. There's nothing I can do. We are not to become fatalists. Because if you look, God used the planting, didn't he? God used the watering. God honored the work, and he brought growth out of it. God cannot bring the growth if there is no watering, if there is no planting. In the same way, you can't sit back and say, well, God will grow me spiritually. I don't need to pray. I don't need to read the Bible. I, need to, I don't need to be committed to church and go to small groups. I don't need to do any of that. God in his time will bring the growth. No, not at all. Friends, God brings the growth, but he does so as we engage in the labors of watering and planting as we seek after him. That's how God brings revival and renewal to our lives. It, you need to pray, to pray for your own heart, to pray for the church. And it's because we believe that God will bring growth that we do those things. Because his promise to us gives us two things. First, it makes us labor with purpose. Do you ever read the Bible and pray and you're just like, what is the point of this? I mean, if it's ultimately up to God, then, then won't he just kind of make me spiritually mature? Won't he just change my life? No, God is using those things. It's like, for example, a storehouse. Imagine, you know, the new crazies days, zombie apocalypse, right? And I always do this sometimes. Um, I, I, I go, I'm driving and I see a target and, and I think, you know, if a zombie apocalypse came and I ran into that target, what would I grab? Right? I don't know, maybe I'm just weird. I, 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 do, I do that. Uh, or I walk into a room, and in a, if a zombie came in, which, you know, what would I use? I would use Elder Sam's guitar. <laughs> um, imagine that, you know, you know that there's some kind of uh, apocalyptic event, and you need to collect resources, right? You need to collect food and things like that, right? You don't use that in that moment, right? That stuff stays in storage. You don't access that on a daily basis. But in the time of need, right, if that storehouse is empty, there's nothing you can do when the attack comes. But it's in the time of need that you have access to it. In the same way, when we pray and when we read the word and we're filled with it, all that, so, some of us, we don't read the word and we're automatically changed. But what is that doing? We're creating a storehouse. We're creating a storehouse that God is going to use. And God is going to use the way that you spent time in the word and fellowship and in worship and in prayer. And God's going to use that to bring about the growth. And so the promise is that we have a purpose. And the second is we have patience. Because the other times we read the Bible and we think, okay, we're just not going to grow. This is completely useless. This is completely pointless. And when we don't see the results quickly, we run out of patience. But if we know and trust that God will bring the growth in his time, then it gives us patience to press on in reading the word and in seeking after him. And so that's simply the first point. We're God's field. The church is God's field. We belong to him, so we need to look to God to bring growth. Now, the second metaphor is this. The church is God's building. If you look in verse 9, um, Paul puts it back to back, two metaphors. You are God's field. And then you could insert in there, you are God's building. Now, why does he switch metaphors? What's Paul's point? 
And he switches metaphors to get to verse 11, because this is the main point of it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of a building is that which is being built on. And here we see that Jesus is that foundation. Not just Jesus, but Jesus and him crucified. The gospel is the foundation of the church. If you look at verse 10, Paul wrote, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. What is that foundation? Well, he told us in chapter 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The foundation of the church is the gospel. It's Jesus and him having died for our sins and resurrected in glory. As a church, then, God's building must be faithful to the foundation. Every brick that we lay down, every board that we nail, every wall that's painted, it must be faithful and consistent with gospel teaching, gospel sharing, and gospel witnessing. In fact, this is so important. Listen to what Paul says in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, this foundation of Christ, if you build with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The foundation is Jesus. And as a church, we are building on that foundation. And Paul is saying, one day a test will come, a test of fire. And it's going to expose whether or not the things you built were consistent with the foundation or they weren't. He uses uh, different materials. He says gold, silver, and precious stones. Those things are going to last. Those things are going to endure the fire. But materials like wood, hay, and straw, they're going to be burned up quickly. And Paul's point is this. As a church, the ministry we do, are we building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ? Are we building upon the foundation of the gospel? Because if we do, that work is going to endure. On the final day when the fire comes, that work will last. But if we build our ministry upon gimmicks and and fancy programs and oohs and ahs, then those things on the final day, the fire will claim it. Paul is saying if we want the church to endure and the work of the church to endure, the work of the church needs to be built on the foundation of Jesus. Now, this idea wasn't original to Paul. In fact, he just took it from Jesus. Because in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, and you have to listen to this, he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus saying, what constitutes an enduring church? Faithful commitment to Jesus Christ, that rock, that is the foundation. And so the same thing that prepares the church so that the gates of hell can't prevail over it is the same thing that will help the church be able to stand and endure on the final test of fire on the last day. What is that? That is faithful commitment to Jesus, gospel teaching, gospel preaching. Gregory Elder, he was a priest, and and he tells this story that when he was growing up along the Atlantic coast, uh, he would go out to the beach in the summer and just spend the whole day making all these intricate sandcastles. And there was this one summer when a bunch of local bullies would show up uh, every day, and after his hard day at work, they would just smash his sandcastles with their bare feet. You know, these castles he had spent hours on. 
So he had a brilliant idea. And the next day he went and he found some cinder blocks and chunks of concrete. And he used them as a foundation in the structure of the sandcastles. And so the bullies showed up right on schedule. And when they tried to destroy what he had created to their painful and bloody efforts, they met their match. They could not destroy that which was built on a solid foundation. And here's the implication for us. As a church, we're doing ministry. Right? By the way, church, the ministry is not just the pastor or the leader's jobs. We are a every-member ministry church. All of us engage in ministry. And so the things that we do, the ways that we serve, the things that we're investing in, is that consistent with the gospel and making the gospel known to us and making the gospel known to the world? You've got to ask the question, are we focusing on raising gospel-centered disciples from our children, even to you guys, even to the adults, or is our aim to raise nice people who are religious and go to church on Sunday? Are we really trying to help people love Jesus, worship Jesus, and share Jesus, or are we trying to make this church comfortable and enjoyable like a country club? The only way that the church, the only way that her work will last is if we remain faithful to the gospel foundation, which means this. As we enter the new year, the leadership, we're going to share a new vision statement for the church. And as we share the vision statement and we share five core values, this is very intentional. Don't think, I don't want you to think, oh, we've had vision statements before. They don't really help us. They don't really touch with what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. Or, oh, I've ha- oh, core values, we've had those before, but it didn't really make a difference. No, if we have a vision and we have core values and we're moving forward as a church and we want to build upon the foundation, that means we need to be strategic in the things that we do, in the bricks that we lay down. We need to be purposeful in building upon the foundation, which means a, a, a different way of thinking. And I'm asking you, church, that you don't think, oh, we've just done those things, but you actually see how it's strategic we're trying to be. From the children's ministry to the youth group to the new young adults group and to the married couples, we want to be headed in a new direction. Because everything else we do as a church that's not centered on the gospel, that's, it's good stuff. It can be great stuff. But as verse 15 reminds us, on the final day, it's going to be burned up. And so my request, my hope is, is for us as a church, and I'm doing this because if we're small enough, and, and I'd like all of us to be on board as, as we move forward, that we are moving forward together, strategically, building our work upon the gospel, because we are God's building. And all that we build must be upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, as I wrap up this point, I want to draw your attention to verse 15. And I, sh- and I wanted to do this because when I heard verse 15, my sophomore year of college, it, sh- it was one of those moments that shook, up my coll- that shook up my spiritual life and was never the same after. Paul says something so very sobering for us here. In verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying a Christian can still be a Christian, yet have done nothing in his life or her life that will stand the test of fire. Meaning that you can live your Christian life and never have done a ministry that will last. A ministry that was built upon the gospel. 
You can live your Christian life very comfortably. You can say you're a Christian and never, ever have experienced the awkwardness of sharing your faith with a stranger. You can be a Christian and work in the same office for 30 years and never once invite a coworker to church or offer to pray for them. You can follow Jesus and never have sacrificed your time to discipling and being discipled. You can be a saved believer and have a lot of never-evers in your Christian life. But know this, on that final day, your work will be burned up. The fire will come, you will escape, but only you. One pastor writes this, Charles Dickens's fictional character, the mean-spirited Scrooge, became a changed man following a series of dreams in which were revealed to him his failures to take opportunities to do good. Then he writes, In the age to come, there are no second chances. This life is no dress rehearsal, but the one and only opportunity to do the will of God. You know, as a church, we want to invest our time and our energy in the things that will last. We want to build upon things that will last. But that shouldn't only just be the concern of the church, but you individually. You can be a Christian. Never have talked about Jesus. You can be a Christian. You can be a saved Christian and have nobody in your neighborhood know that you love Jesus. You can be a saved Christian and remain silent. But on the final day, you will suffer loss and your work will be burned up, and you alone will go through and be saved from the fire. So my challenge here, this, has, this is kind of a sidestep, but my challenge here is just a sobering reminder for us to build and invest in things that will last, to build and invest in things that will stand the test of fire. Well, moving along, let me get to my third point. The church is God's temple. The church is God's temple. Look with me at this last metaphor in verse 16. And Paul says it almost kind of, hey, do you not know that you are God's temple? Meaning you should know you are God's temple. And why this metaphor? Because this point. Don't you know God's spirit dwells in you? As God's temple, as the church is God's temple, that means the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Now, if you remember in the Old Testament, the temple was a physical structure. But before the temple, there was a movable tent. It was called the tabernacle. And after the Israelites left Egypt, escaped from Egypt, and were wandering around in the desert, they would set up annually this large tent called the tabernacle, and God's Spirit would come, and He would dwell with them. He was present with them in their desert wandering. But after the monarchy, after they entered into the promised land, after King Saul and King David, King Solomon built a permanent structure, the temple. And in the temple, God's Holy Spirit would come and he would dwell with the people. That was a symbol of God's presence. So in biblical history, it was a shocking and devastating time when the Babylonians came and they destroyed the temple. And then the people of God were exiled, but under God's grace through Cyprus, or Cyrus, they were able to send people back, and they rebuilt the temple. And they were so excited, because the temple is now here. And then a couple hundred years later, the Romans came, and the Romans destroyed the temple. 
But although we do not have a temple now, we do not need to be devastated. We don't need to be destroyed. Why? Because in the era of the church, a physical temple is no longer necessary. Instead, God calls the church, God calls us his temple as his spirit dwells with us. God's spirit, God's presence does not come once a year and dwell among us. He, the spirit, lives within us. He is present with us always. But here's the thing. In chapter 6, we shouldn't get confused. In chapter 6, Paul is going to go on to say that your body is a temple, so treat it, you know, well. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying here that the community of believers is the temple. Because if you actually look at verse 16, Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple? That you is plural. Don't you know that you all are God's singular temple? It means this. As the Spirit dwells in each one of us, when we come together, God is present with His people in a very special and unique way. When we come together as God's people, this is something sacred. This is something holy. For example, Jesus in Matthew 18 says this famous line, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You may have heard that verse. But this verse obviously doesn't mean that Jesus is only going to be with believers when they're in pairs. It doesn't mean that after you leave from church, Jesus is no longer with you. No, not at all. It means this. When the people of God are gathered, his presence is with us in a special and unique kind of way. And so when we congregate as believers, there is something holy and sacred happening here. God's presence is with us in a special way. And the thing is, though, when we come to church, we don't think like that. How different would it be if you knew that when you came in, God's Spirit is among us now? You know, what is church? And for a lot of people, church, we know it's not a building, but we would maybe define church. It's a gathering of of people who, who form a community because they believe in the same thing. Well, that would make us not so different than Muslims who gather in a mosque or Buddhists who gather in temples. You know, are we just Christians gathering to conduct a religious service as a community of faith? Well, yes, in one sense, that's a very good thing, but Paul wants us to know this. When we're gathered as a church, there's something much more profound happening. In this moment, right now, whether you realize it or not, the Spirit of God is among us. He is indwelling us now. We are a temple. This is a holy and sacred time. And Paul takes it so seriously that he gives a warning. In verse 17, he says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, we like to shy away from this kind of language, God destroying. You know, we know in the Old Testament, God commanded the destruction of cities, and we don't like that part, but we have to deal with it. Why does it say if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him? And I think it's because God is so jealous for his people. God is so jealous for the purity of his church that when anybody comes and they divide the church, When anybody comes and they promote factionalism, they promote division, they stir controversy, they spread gossip, he or she is destroying God's temple and God will not stand for it. But here's what this means for us. It's not merely a warning. 
Instead of seeking to destroy it, we should work hard to preserve it. We should not just settle for maintenance, but for flourishing. I mean, we should work together as a community for oneness, for unity, for vision. Because this is a great promise for our spiritual community. The Spirit of God is working with us. He's knitting our hearts together. Which then makes me think, what have you done to work out this great identity? What have you done to seek community as spirit-indwelled people? What have you contributed to seeing this church flourish together? How have you helped foster a grace-filled atmosphere among the congregation? And I want to challenge you with that. If the church is something spiritual, we're not just people coming together to sing some songs, to hear the word, and then go on our merry way. But when we come together, the Spirit of God is making us His temple. With that understanding, when you come to this service, when you come to this church, in what ways are you trying to foster that? To grow together. Instead of coming, checking in, and then checking out. The church, we are God's temple. We belong to God. His Spirit indwells in us. Now, here's what's really interesting and beautiful about this passage, though. Take a step back, and what have you noticed? We've noticed that God, the triune God, is working in His church. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working and directing the church. Because we are God's field, and God the Father gives the growth. And so we seek to grow in our faith. We are God's building, and God the Son is the foundation. So we build upon that by focusing on the gospel. And thirdly, we are God's temple, and God the Spirit dwells in us so that we can enjoy and build together our spiritual community. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. He is jealous for His church. He is working in His church. He's building and directing His church. But here's the last question that I'll consider. God directs his church. He's given us direction, but why should we follow? Why should we follow? And that's the last point. The church is God's. The church is God's. Look at verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. In summing up his point, Paul is encouraging the church that all things belong to the church. Not only every spiritual blessing, which he says here, not not only every spiritual blessing in life or death in the present or the future, but also every spiritual leader belongs to the church. It's interesting, he's saying the church did not belong to Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. They belong to the church. But how is this possible? And the answer is because we belong to Jesus. The church is not without an owner because the church was purchased. You see, we talk about Jesus dying on the cross for us, but Jesus in taking up the cross and dying for sinners, his blood wasn't only effective in washing our sins away and reconciling us to God. His blood, his life was a costly payment by which he purchased the church in the same way that a groom would pay a dowry for his bride. You see, Jesus ransomed you and I. He ransomed us with the expensive payment of his own life. And as he ransomed us, he pledged himself to us to give himself to us freely. You see, Jesus not only took our sin freely, but he gives us his riches and his righteousness freely. Jesus does not hold anything back. He didn't hold back giving up his life. And he doesn't hold back the rewards of his perfect obedience. 
You see, in this last portion, it says Christ is God's. What does that mean? Christ is God's son. You see, God not only sent his son, God spent his son. God spent it all. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, my dad would give me $5 and say, you can go buy a snack. And I would go and I would buy the cheapest snack and I would just pocket the change. I did not spend it all. But, but God, in sending his son, did not just kind of cut him here so that the blood would spill and that he would purchase the church. No, he spent the entirety of his son for us. And Jesus had no objections. In the garden before the cross, he was praying that God's will be done. This Jesus, who once had everything in heaven, enjoying eternal glory, enjoying all of the wonder and splendor and the worship of the angels, this Jesus, he laid it all aside. He laid his crown and his, his throne aside, and he came to this earth, and he shed his blood to redeem and ransom you and me. And therefore, Paul could not be more right when he wrote, and you are Christ's. We, the church, we belong to God through Christ. You see, church, when you understand the gospel, when you understand what Jesus did for us, his church, it'll make us realign our priorities as a church. It'll make us rethink all of our motivations. And when we see how Jesus unselfishly gave up his life, he gave us all things, we will turn and resolve to be a church that obeys him and follows his lead and his direction. We will seek him and we will pray for spiritual revival personally as a church because we know he gives the growth. We will work hard to build his kingdom through gospel-centered ministry because we know Jesus is the foundation. We will pursue after spiritual community and grace-empowered relationships because we know the spirit indwells us. You see, once we understand the gospel, once it really grips us, this church, it should change our focus, our direction, our philosophy of ministry, our vision, what we value, what we want, what we're willing to give up. To give up the dreams of that country club picture where I go to church and everyone knows my name and it's comfortable and it's great. But we would come and also not view the church as, as a cruise ship. One pastor mentioned that last week but that we'd come and we'd see the church as a battleship, right? Even the power of that metaphor. Once we understand the gospel, it helps us understand our identity, that we are not our own, but we are God's through Christ. And being God's church and not our own, not our own church, it's a good thing to be. And obeying God and following him as he's directed us is a good thing to do. Pray with me, please. Father, as we took a look at this word, we thank you that you call us and you redeemed us. I thank you especially for this last verse where you remind us, and you are Christ's. Father, we belong to you. This church belongs to you. It doesn't belong to us. Some of us here have been here since day one, since the very beginning, before Cornerstone even existed as an independent church. Some of us have just joined but whether we've been here for 16 years or whether we've been here for 16 days, 
The church belongs to you. And because the church belongs to you, because you paid for us with the very blood of your son, we want to be the church you want us to be. We want to be a field where God brings the growth. We want to be a building where Christ is the foundation. We want to be a temple where the Spirit indwells us. Lord, help us to be that kind of church, a church that is pleasing to you because you bought us with the precious blood of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Now receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus, who is the foundation of this church, and the love of God the Father Almighty, who brings growth and renewal and revival to our hearts, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, making us the temple. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people, both now and forever. Amen. Please hear the dismissal. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Go in peace. <laughs>